0: Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, presented by Conserve the Wild, your destination for an unfiltered look at conservation. Now let's get wild. Welcome back to another episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast. I'm your host, Jason Creighton, and this is episode number 43, Let's Talk Turkey. Today, I have a great guest on. You're really going to love them, and it's uh, a very timely interview that we have. My guest today is Mike Chamberlain. He's a professor of wildlife ecology and management at the University of Georgia. He conducts applied research on various species, but really, I mean, he specializes in wild turkey research. You may know him on Twitter as Wild Turkey Doc or on Instagram as wild turkey doc. He has some great research out there and today we're going to be talking about that research and the things that he's seeing. We're talking everything from trapping and GPS tracking of turkeys. We're going to talk about habitat management geared towards turkeys. We're going to talk about nesting trends. We're even going to talk about how turkeys respond to hunting pressure in the spring. Really, really great stuff. So let's just go ahead and dive right into it After a quick break, and you're going to hear my conversation with Professor Chamberlain. All right, so, Mike, thank you for joining me today. Uh, I'd like to First, I guess, just ask how you got into wild turkey research.
1: Yeah, so um, I was a as a graduate student at Mississippi State. I was actually hired on a turkey study. I was vaguely interested in turkeys, but I really wanted to go to grad school, <laughs> so <laughs> so I accepted the uh, the position, and and the rest is kind of history, as they say. I I did my master's research on wild turkeys, ended up doing my doctoral research on turkeys and some other critters, and as soon as I landed an academic job uh, at the time at at Louisiana State University, I started turkey research, obviously, because I uh, had been involved in, in that arena, and I've been doing turkey research ever since.
0: I don't want to age you, but, you know, how many years have you been working with Turkey then?
1: This is my 25th year, uh, actually 26th year. Um, so it, I've been at it a pretty good while.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, so can you tell me what kind of research you're focusing on now?
1: Yeah. So my, most of my work now is movement-based work. We, we do a lot of work that involves capturing birds and fitting them with a a backpack telemetry unit it's it's a a gps unit that collects locations periodically in our case we we get hourly locations on the birds and then a lot of my work is how much space do they use what habitats do they use Uh, how do they interact with predators how do they interact with hunters what are the consequences of the way they behave on their survival or their reproductive success or, or whatever? And um, and then the other component of my work right now is we're doing a lot of work on gobbling activity where we use basically these um, these listening devices. They're called song meters, and you deploy them on the landscape, and they listen, if you will, constantly, and they record all of the gobbling activity that that's occurring so we we're doing a lot of work with that trying to inform agencies as to when birds are gobbling when they're gobbling the most when gobbling activity starts and stops uh, so that the agencies can time the, the hunting seasons most appropriately
0: so you mentioned that you're working with agencies i mean do you Sort of partner with anyone else or anything to conduct any of this research?
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. So um, most of my work is, is agency funded, uh, primarily through Pittman Robertson funds. So so hunters and outdoors enthusiasts are the ones responsible for the funding that that drives the research that we do, but. Uh, I, I collaborate with a number of researchers at other institutions, some of which are former students or postdoctoral researchers of mine, and some are just colleagues that I've known for years that, that have similar interests, and in, in the agencies in their states have similar questions. So we, we work together, we pool our data, we, we try to make the best uh, recommendations we can using all of the information that we've, we've gained collectively.
0: Okay so there are you know multiple subspecies of turkeys in North America do you focus most of your research on one and then i guess whether you do or don't like can your research be used for other subspecies too
1: Sure most of my work currently is on easterns um basically as an artifact of the region that i work in but but I'm also involved in in some research on Rio Grande wild turkeys, um, and I'm also uh, peripherally involved in some work on Gould's wild turkeys, which that work has has been completed, but we're still we're still trying to analyze data and publish findings. So, in that vein, I'm I have my fingers, if you will, in in the work on three of the of the five subspecies. Uh,
0: do you notice? other than the fact that they are turkeys? Like, do you notice any similarities through the research based on those different subspecies?
1: You you do. You see some similarities. Uh, Most, uh, I would say, just kind of quickly thinking about it, most being some of the trends we see in, in reproductive success. Bottom line is turkeys are... Are not very successful when it comes to nesting and that that's a kind of a common trait across the subspecies but the the one question you ask about how applicable the the findings are amongst the subspecies and I would I would say they're not really we you see easterns you know they have a, a diversity of habitats available to them and and they can use a lot of different habitats but when you get to dealing with rios you're, you know completely different landscape and then when you get you know to working with goulds that the landscapes they inhabit are dramatically different than than say eastern birds do so they are all turkeys but they the different subspecies have have evolved adaptations to living in in the the environments that they inhabit
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense and and talking to a couple friends who have hunted different subspecies of turkeys, you know, throughout uh, the United States, you know, they definitely note a big difference in how you go about trying to hunt different turkeys in different areas. They, they, they claim they're acting differently or in responding to calls differently and, and things of that nature.
1: Sure. Sure.
0: So, I mean, You've been at this research for a long time. I'm sure there's been some interesting things that you have noticed with with some of the research. So is, is there anything that you can sort of speak about that really sticks out in your mind as far as research for these turkeys?
1: Yeah, I would say, you know, many years ago, I think the turkey research world, if you go back to the days when I was a grad student back in the 90s, the turkey world was really kind of exploding that there was a lot of research being done in a lot of different states and and then you you saw kind of a stagnation in in the turkey world a lot of the the older researchers that were doing turkey research retired and frankly i think we lulled ourselves into a, a sleep if you will there were turkeys were everywhere they were doing well harvest was increasing in most states and everybody was happy so agencies diverted funding away from from turkey research and put their priorities elsewhere and and that went on for for a number of years and then a few years ago it, it's been a decade now in reality but the development of of gps transmitters for turkeys kind of reinvigorated my my research career And then you you piggyback that with the sudden realization that turkeys aren't doing as well as we thought they were in many, many areas, not all, but in many areas. And suddenly you saw states recognize that they needed to go back to the drawing board, if you will, from a research perspective and use some new tools and some new technology and try to get answers as to why Turkeys in, in some areas just don't seem to be doing well and kind of wrap all that together. And I, th- I think what you've seen recently is a resurgence, if you will, in, in the, the interest surrounding turkeys and, and their management.
0: So you mentioned that we sort of, I guess, sort of lulled ourselves to sleep thinking that turkeys were doing great and then realized, you know, after some years that maybe we weren't. As you know, turkeys weren't doing quite as well as we thought. So you know, and in the you know early and mid 200 or mid 1900s, we had you know sort of that that low number of turkeys as far as population. We hit that sort of low point, and now you know we're we've done better. We've increased them you know like crazy, but they're declining. So like, where are we at now in terms of turkey population? Is it stable? Is it patchy? You know where are we at?
1: It's really, it's really all over the board, if you will. You know, it's really remarkable. If you, if you look in the eastern United States and even, you know, southeast, northeast, uh, even the Midwest, the eastern subspecies is not doing as well as we would like. And in a lot of areas, We're, we're seeing dramatically declining reproduction um, production's down you're seeing harvest as either stabilized and or declined in in a number of states and then you move into urban areas or suburban areas and you see turkeys as I mean they're a nuisance in in many places and so you, you got this dichotomy with this bird which is which is really interesting and we know less generally about the other subspecies. I mean, we've studied, there are very talented researchers studying Rios and studying Merriams and, and Goulds, but the lion's share of research has been done on, on Easterns because they are the most common and widespread. But if you look even within Merriams and within Rios, you you, you I'm seeing some of these same concerns Um you know, talking with managers and and hunters, there I think you're starting to see some of the same issues creep into those subspecies, not uniformly, but certainly within within areas.
0: Yeah, I would say, you know, the general population that are not hunters, you know, like you said, they're they're seeing these turkeys coming into their housing plans and, you know, it's almost like a, a pet for them. So they may not notice a change in population if anything they think there might be too many like you said a nuisance but a lot of hunters uh, are noticing at least pockets of areas where the where the numbers are going down and i've been requested by a bunch of my friends who are hunters you know why are there less turkeys most hunters want to say it's because there's an increase in predators Um, is that really the reason or are there other factors that are in play
1: I, i use this analogy and I've I've said this a number of times but what you're seeing with turkeys on our landscapes now in areas where they are declining is there it's death by a thousand cuts they if you look at the landscape from a turkey's perspective there's there's a couple of really important things to recognize and one is turkeys are not uniformly distributed. They're not just everywhere. They, they live in, in pockets. I, I I use a light bulb analogy where, uh, the landscape is lit up bright from a series of light bulbs, but those light bulbs are in their pockets. So there's, there's a group of turkeys here and then there will be some areas where there are not turkeys. And what, why that's important is if, if, they're in pockets, and the pocket, the size of the pocket, or the light bulb in this case, is getting dimmer. It has to blink completely off for you to really notice that something's wrong. In other words, if if the the picture gets a little dimmer each year, you become deaf to it, you become numb to it, you don't you don't notice it. But when it blinks out, all of a sudden it's dark, and you go, oh wow, it's it's you know it's dark. That's what's happening with with turkeys, and it and it's not there's no one smoking gun. It it is death by a thousand cuts. I mean, you, you see in, in general, many landscapes, the quality of the habitats that these birds have available to them is declining, whether it be vegetation, uh, bugs, you know, insects that birds eat, uh, mast availability in the fall. You see in declines in in the abundance and quality of hardwood habitats and a lot of a lot of landscapes you tack on predation and you see that that predator communities are more diverse and abundant now than they have been in in decades past you have species like you know, for instance coyotes that are now predators of turkeys in some places that they weren't even present historically so you you absolutely have a, a predator issue in regards to more and and more diverse and then you you have a species that's hunted you i mean frankly you have an animal that's also that's also hunted it's the only species you know game bird in the contiguous united states that's hunted primarily while they're breeding so you you have a You know the potential that that things that we do can can be complications you know and how this bird operates you have habitat issues you have predator issues and obviously you know you have some disease issues in some flocks so you know that's that's kind of what drives that analogy it's just a, a death by a thousand cuts
0: you mentioned that there's some habitat loss um, and habitat that's just not able to support the turkey populations. What, what kind of habitat is a turkey looking for? I guess specifically the, the eastern, let's just focus on that. Um, you know, what would be sort of perfect habitat for a turkey?
1: Yeah, so if you, if you look at easterns, I mean, they're a forest dwelling bird, obviously, but within those forests... They are adapted to using plant communities that are open they a, a turkey is able to survive based uh, to a large degree on its eyesight uh, yes they have incredible sense of place and they have they can hear well but they their eyesight is incredible which any hunter can attest to so this bird has to be able to see so if you if you stand, At turkey head height, the vegetation needs to be lower than that. Otherwise, they struggle um, to be able to detect, you know, risk when it's there. So, that there's no, there's no like template for, well, turkeys need this habitat type, if you will. I mean, they'll, they'll use all sorts of, of habitats throughout the eastern United States, but the one commonality is they need Early successional plant communities that often are driven by disturbance, whether it's prescribed fire, whether it's um, a timber harvest or, you know, d- timber thinnings or something that's going to create a ground layer that's low enough in height that a bird can see over it, walk through it, nest in it, brood in it, et cetera.
0: Uh, You mentioned prescribed fire. That's something that a lot of people typically will do sort of in that early springtime, which also coincides with, uh, you know, breeding and and nesting for turkeys. Mm -hmm. So how does prescribed fire impact, you know, doing it at that time of year, how does it impact nesting for turkeys?
1: Most, Most of our, of the birds that we've monitored on our study sites where fire was was a vital component of the management. Most of those birds do two things. One, they typically don't nest in stands that are scheduled to be burned. So when given an option, they don't nest in these dog hair thick areas that are ready to be burned again. They typically nest in stands that were burned last year or maybe two years prior. So they're not, they're not ready to be burned again. The, the second thing, unless you're burning during the growing season, which is a, that's a totally different beast, if you will, but if you're burning in the dormant season, which you know, December, January, February, March, by and large, you're burning well before the nesting season starts. Our birds, in the, in the deep south anyway, they don't get geared up until the very, very end of March, and m- most of our nests are mid-April. So, as long as you're burning in, you know, prior to that that period, what we find is that fire it has very, very little impact on on nesting. In fact, of all the nests that are lost, it, it's about one percent of all the nest loss we've seen was attributable to fire. So it's, it's essentially
0: irrelevant. That's good to know. What would, what contributes to that other 99% of nest loss?
1: It, it's an entirely predation. Okay. We, yeah. We, we see, you know, you'll, you'll occasionally have birds that abandon nests for whatever reason, you know, maybe a, someone, you know, somebody mowing a field, flushes them off the nest or whatever. But by and large, most, Nest loss is predation,
0: and that predation would be by like raccoons, possums,
1: you name it.
0: Okay, <laughs> um, okay.
1: Uh, raccoons are are real an important you know mammalian predator. We lose nests to to bobcats, whether the cats eat the eggs or kill the the attending adult. We lose uh, quite a few nests to snakes. Uh, Rat snakes and other snakes are important nest predators. We lose birds to great horned owls uh, that cause, you know, they kill the the adult and therefore the nest is lost. So there's a long line of nest predators when it comes to, you know, what can eat a turkey nest.
0: So, you know, all this focus on uh, habitat that we've been talking about. You know, I own, well, my family owns property uh, that we've been trying to manage the habitat on. And, you know, while we, I guess, would primarily deer hunt, you know, we, we don't want to manage the property solely for deer. We also like to turkey hunt. We also like to see squirrels and rabbits, right, all that stuff. So what are some things that we, without seeing the property, that, you know, we should be doing to try to promote proper habitat for turkeys?
1: Well, broad question, but for sure, if you look at turkeys kind of how they function across the the year what you realize is that they have some really defined needs that change by season so you know this time of year you know we're in january and turkeys are using hard mast they're they're using acorns and and other primarily nuts that are that are hardwood driven Um, obviously that changes as you move about the united states but but a a winter habitat for for a turkey needs to have mast in it and then all of a sudden they change as soon as spring green up comes they shift from say eating acorns to using green plant material they turkeys eat a lot of insects they um they're certainly omnivorous they eat they eat a lot of insects and a lot of people don't realize it but turkeys particularly toms but but even the the hens they'll eat salamanders frogs crayfish they uh, small snakes they 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 will eat a lot of of different prey items and then you have poults the the young that are that are hatched And they're almost entirely carnivorous they they or insectivorous i guess you should say they eat all insects the first few weeks of their their life and then they progress through the summer and they eat soft mast and insects and green vegetation and then suddenly they're back in the fall and the winter and they they're shifting again so if you kind of paint the entire landscape with that brush I just tell people, you know, focus on if you if you take a, a critical look at your property and your neighbor's property, if you can fulfill those three kind of needs. I have hard mast or hardwood habitat in the the fall and winter. I have plant communities that are green and succulent and and are going to attract um, insects during the spring and summer. And then if I have some areas that are going to produce soft mast or are going to be super abundant in insects think openings you know uh, disturbed early successional grassland type habitats if I have areas like that where my poults that are hatched can scarf up bugs then I can fulfill the annual needs of this bird
0: but that's good to know so with the GPS backpacks um, you know we, I've been keeping up with some different researchers and it seems that GPS you know is the new hot sort of research tool um, just because it seems to be much easier to use uh, with new technology do you notice turkeys using the same tree or same group of trees for uh, you know to roost in at night or do they seem to be pretty spread out and I understand that some of that's landscape driven but does it sure. seem like they have, like, are they sort of homebodies? Like, they always go to the same tree, like a home to roost?
1: No, they don't. Um, but that does differ quite a bit by subspecies and by individual. And I'll, I'll explain briefly what I mean by that. But So, Easterns typically have roost sites scattered all over their their home range now what we what we find is that you would if you just looked at a forest you'd say well gosh a turkey could roost anywhere here but that they don't they they do have areas uh that they roost in repeatedly they don't do that night after night what we find with with particularly during the spring during the summer it's a little different they do tend to to roost in the same places night after night but in the in the winter and the spring we see a lot of movement. We see a bird roost here tonight, and he may roost a quarter mile away the next night, back somewhere else the following night, and then maybe three, four, five days later, he ends up at the same general spot he was the first night. But they don't typically roost in the same place every night, at least Easterns. Now, Rio's, different ballgame. Rio's and and Merriam's that live in landscapes where roost are more limited, they tend to use the same roost locations night after night, and that's really dramatic. If you go to areas of, say, uh, Texas or Oklahoma, where um, riparian areas that rios roost in that are dominated by cottonwood, well, those cottonwoods are, are declining, and you see those birds may only have two or three roosts in their entire home range that they that they have available to them. So they end up in the in the same spot every night.
0: Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, being local to Pennsylvania, um, you know, you'll it seems like they have general areas, but like you said, it's not necessarily every night that they're in that area. So that that definitely makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but, and
1: one thing that's interesting that I never thought about, but I've I've heard this a lot, and I've even said it myself. You know, I heard the same bird in the same place two nights in a row, or five nights in a row, or whatever. You might have. But more likely what you heard was different birds at that same spot. Because we routinely see that toms will roost here tonight and that individual moves somewhere else and roost the following night. But another tom may end up at that first roost site in almost the exact same location. And if you kind of think about it from a turkey's perspective, they need to... They need to gobble during the spring to attract attention, but they also need to gobble to maintain their social hierarchy. So, in other words, they need to gobble to let other toms know they're there. So, if you're trying to do both of those two things while not dying at your roost site, so you don't you need to attract attention, but you don't want to attract too much attention what better way way to 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 navigate around that than to have the strategy of well i'll gobble here tonight and then tomorrow i'm going to move somewhere else and try it again and then i may circle back to that spot in a few days but i'm not going to stay at the same place and vocalize or call because i might attract predators or or risk so it, it makes sense if kind of if you step back and think about it
0: yeah that makes a ton of sense uh with regards to how birds move based on hunter impact what are you seeing with that with the GPS backpacks
1: the take-home there really is there's no such thing as an average Tom the, these birds they have a variety of ways of responding to hunting pressure we see some birds that just get out of dodge like they'll they'll bump into a hunter we we ask hunters to to carry GPS units of their own so we we have a lot of data on hunter movements and how they move about the landscape and we see you know sometimes we'll just book it they they interact with a hunter and they'll they'll move a mile two miles right at just right then and end up somewhere they they haven't been previously and then we see sometimes obviously get shot but then we see sometimes that just hunker down and deal with it and they don't change their behavior at all, except they may use roads less. They may move farther away from roads. They may uh, use private land. A lot of the areas we work on are public lands, obviously. They may shift a little bit and use more private land at times, but they just deal with the pressure. They they just stay there. So, it, and then every you know every conceivable scenario you can come up with, we've seen it. Uh, these birds are highly individualistic in response to how they, they behave.
0: That's interesting. Uh, So we like to end our podcast episodes with a call to action. So something that uh, our guests would like to see our listeners do or to know about. So is there anything that we missed or something that listeners could do to sort of maybe help boost the Turkey population in their area?
1: I would say, uh, number one to me would be listen to science. Uh, and that sounds <laughs> that sounds crazy, but uh, there are there are some really talented people that are working really, really diligently to try to figure out what the issue with this bird in some areas is or issues are and it's complex and and managers and researchers and hunters and delay person we're all on the same page we you know i think anyone that's a turkey enthusiast wants the same thing trust science that we are we're working diligently to try to get there there's there are bumps in the road and there's unknowns obviously but we're all after the same objective here the the second thing i would say just as an aside is think big so if if you're a listener and you own 200 acres and you're interested in turkeys or you own 2000 acres and you're interested in turkeys look at your neighbors and yourself because turkeys are a mobile wide-ranging bird their home ranges are hundreds and thousands of acres not tiny little blocks so unless you own large acreage, you're sharing birds with neighbors. So I would encourage people that are really interested in this bird to think big, you know, reach out to your neighbors, see if you have commonalities, see if you, if you have some deficiencies, like we've talked about if, you, if you're lacking, for instance, hardwood habitats, and, and you have a neighbor that's a mile down the road that has a lot of hardwood habitats. Well, I can promise you he or she is getting your turkeys during the fall and winter. So reach out to them. Uh, consider developing cooperatives. You know, maybe just a handshake agreement, and we're going to work together on this. Because, like we we've talked about, this bird has seasonal needs that are pretty dramatically different from each other. So, if you think big, um, you know we can all we can all work towards managing for sustainable populations.
0: Yeah, that's great. I mean. It... There are, especially in the eastern United States, just it, it's so segmented with private land that really to make an impact on you know a population level, we, we really have to start working together. Um, so that definitely makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah, uh, the eastern U.S. for sure, for sure. Uh, Mike, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Um, I hope we can talk in the future about some new insights from research that you find.
1: Absolutely. It's good good to be here.
0: I mean, seriously, how cool is that conversation? Talking about Turkey, and like I said, it's a very timely conversation that we had. Uh, Turkey seasons are starting to ramp up and, and start all across the country. Unfortunately, here in Pennsylvania, and I know there's a couple other states out there, we still have an entire another month to wait before we can start chasing those long beards. But it's still cool to be thinking about turkeys now, right? Uh, Got that cabin fever going. Some of you may not be allowed out of your house. Uh, You might have that cabin fever going, trying to find any ways that you can to get outside or at least be thinking and contemplating about the outdoors. I've been doing a lot of that. Speaking of, giveaway's still going on. So, give us a rating or review on Apple iTunes or on the Google Play Store for this podcast. Screenshot it and contact us via Twitter at conserve underscore wild. Instagram, conserve the wild or shoot us an email info@conservewild.org we'll get the ball rolling and I'll get you a free sticker for the conservation unfiltered podcast still going to keep going with that with the giveaway and the newsletter as well so sign up for the newsletter at our website conservewild.org and I will get your address and send you out a Conservation Unfiltered Podcast sticker. If you can, get outside. Brush those cobwebs out of your hair. Get the wind blowing in your face. Go for a walk. Be in nature. It's the best way to practice social distancing, quite honestly. So take advantage of that opportunity that you have now if you're off work or working from home. Get outside, take your kids out, take your wife or your husband, take your dogs, whatever you can do, get outside, enjoy nature, and as always, stay wild.